give him praise right now. Hallelujah. What a, what a powerful word. What a commitment to make to him. I give my all. Why not? He did for us. He gave his all. Amen. What a great presence of the Lord that I feel in this place tonight. And again, so glad to have Brother and Sister Bernard. I don't know how many books he's authored, but he has many different books that he has written. If you have any wonderings about the oneness or any of the doctrinal things that uh, might come up in life, uh, you can find the resource in Brother Bernard's writings. What a great blessing. Just being around him makes me feel smarter. Just being with him makes me feel like I'm elevated a little bit. We're delighted to have him. Brother Bernard, I told you back there, we just want to have church tonight. So this isn't Austin, but act like it is tonight. And Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand and clap of praise. Praise the Lord again. Amen. Just remain standing. What a wonderful spirit of worship and praise that's here tonight. Surely the Lord is in this place. And when the Lord is here, it should never be a routine Sunday night. The Lord never comes by accident. He always comes on purpose. So let's let's flow with his purpose for this service tonight. Amen. So as you're standing, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5. It's great to be here. We're happy to celebrate with Pastor and Sister Hughes their 24th pastoral anniversary. That speaks volumes. You know, really, every strong church, you can see a long-term pastoral ministry. It doesn't happen just with rotating every three to five years and having great preachers come in and out. There has to be consistency. And uh, that's what makes a church strong and stable and enables it to grow both numerically and spiritually. So we give honor to Brother and Sister Hughes and to all of you. And we just want to worship the Lord together here tonight. And what does the Lord have in mind? So turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, which he had founded. He said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I want to preach tonight faith in the power of God. You may be seated. Faith in the power of God. And I want to also say, you probably, those of you that are here this morning, you heard, but I do want to express as the General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church International, representing over 40,000 churches worldwide, that we appreciate this local assembly Greater life, your involvement is significant. It's churches like you that enable us to do what we do. And all the great reports that we can share with you, it's because of churches just like yours. And uh, your faithfulness, your participation, your giving, your standing for truth, uh, that's important in these last days. Amen. There are many churches that come and go, there are many churches that go one direction or the other. Some think we're too strict and so they go a different direction some think we're not strict enough and so they go a different direction 
But there's much to be said for just staying the course, just staying faithful, staying true, not being distracted by one side or the other, but continuing to proclaim the apostolic message that we find in the New Testament church, continuing to live a godly life. Uh, We avoid, on the one hand, legalism. We don't think we're saved by rules and regulations. We don't think we're better than anyone else, but we do believe the gospel has a challenge for us to obey. And uh, the Great Commission, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It doesn't sound like mere suggestions, but he does have commandments for the right way to live. And it affects our entire lives. And on the other hand, we avoid license. That is just whatever people think is right in their own eyes. That's not a recipe for revival. That's a recipe for disaster. If you read the book of Judges, the chaos, the civil war, the strife, the gross immorality, which is characteristic in our day, resulted from everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. We must have a clear teaching, a clear standard, clear identity, and God will honor that. Amen. And so I read here in Corinthians The Apostle Paul had established the church at Corinth. It was in a pagan city, a Greek culture, uh, quite a secular culture. We think of our day as increasingly immoral and drifting away from Christian values, and that's certainly true. But first century Corinth was characterized by gross idolatry, the worship of many gods, and gross immorality, all kinds of immorality. Uh, contrary to God's word. But in that environment, Paul established a strong church. He reminded the people, I didn't come to you. The way we started this church was not with eloquence of speech. The, the, the reason why you came and your lives were changed and a church was established was not because I was the best speaker in town, not because I had the most to offer, not because our church had uh, the cutting-edge programs that would entice everyone. He said, nor did I try to rely on human wisdom. It wasn't a nice-sounding philosophy. It wasn't entertaining or, or something that simply educated. It wasn't just a message that made you feel good on Sunday morning and then you could go face the week with a positive mental attitude. I didn't try to build a church like that, he said. But he said, I came to you in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God. Your life was changed. You were delivered. You were set free. You were healed. You were filled with the Holy Ghost. And it was the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in your lives. And so he emphasized to them a message of power. He said in verse 2, When I came, I decided I would not preach anything except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. Everything I preached, he said, was going to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't going to be psychology. It wasn't going to be sociology. It wasn't going to be what sounded good. But it was going to be what G- who Jesus was and what he came to do. Now think about it. When you preach Jesus, what are you going to preach? You're going to preach that God created us to have fellowship with him. But we human beings fell into sin. We broke that fellowship. We thwarted God's plan. God could have simply destroyed us and started over with a different plan. But he loved us, and he wanted to redeem us. And so he established a plan of salvation. The Bible says God gave his only begotten son. Another way to look at it is that God himself was manifested in the flesh. And so Jesus Christ 
was a genuine human being, but he was more than just a man. He was the almighty God who had come into his own creation. The one true God was revealed in the Son of God as the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a human being, Jesus died for our sins. He was the only sinless human who ever lived. He didn't deserve to die. But he paid the price for our sins. He took our place. He shed his blood for us. Not only did he die, but he was buried in the tomb and he rose again the third day. Of course, the resurrection is an essential part of the whole message because his death paid the price for our sins. But had he simply died, he would have been just like Buddha or Muhammad or other figures of history. But when he rose again, he won victory over death, victory over sin victory over the devil and he shares that same victory with those who will believe on him and obey his gospel and so when you preach jesus christ you'll preach the oneness of god the almighty god in jesus christ you'll preach the death the burial and the resurrection of jesus christ but you won't stop with what happened 2,000 years ago. You'll tell how that message applies to our lives today. How does it affect us? What difference does it make to us? Well, we too die with sin and with Jesus Christ when we repent of our sins. We're buried with Jesus Christ in water baptism. We rise in newness of life through the power of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of the resurrected Christ. So when you preach Jesus Christ, and when you preach him crucified, you'll preach the experience of Acts 2.38. You must be born again. You must be born of the water and the spirit. That's how you identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how what he did for us becomes active in our own lives. The Apostle Paul also explained in the book of Galatians that we're crucified with Christ. That we're crucified to the flesh. That we're crucified to the world. What does that mean? It means that repentance is not just a one-time experience, but it's a way of life. That when we live for God, we should treat our old life as if we were dead uh, to the lust of the flesh. As if we were dead to the temptations of the world, the values of the world around us. But instead, we have a new identity. We are pursuing the holiness of God. And that changes everything about us. It changes our relationships with one another. It changes the way we view marriage and family. It changes our attitude, our thoughts, our speech. It changes our dress. It changes our choice of amusements. It's a new way of life. And so when you preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you'll preach the life of holiness that's first and foremost inward, but it extends outwardly and it changes everything about us so that we become a new creation in Christ Jesus, living a new way of life, pleasing to the Lord, not representing the values of the world, but representing the values of heaven in this world. Praise God. In other words, you'll preach the apostolic doctrine. And so Paul said, after saying all that, he, he said, And so I didn't try to persuade you with my ability, but I wanted to convince you by the power of God. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul was not trying to denigrate human ability or study or talent. He was not saying we shouldn't uh, plan and prepare and train and study and, and uh, practice. That, he wasn't saying that. The reason why we know is that Paul was one of the most highly educated people of his day. 
He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who is known to us from Jewish history as one of the foremost rabbis of the first century. So he had what you might call an advanced theological education for his day. Not only that, but he had quite a knowledge of Greek culture. I don't know if he was self-taught or went through a formal training program, but for example, in Acts 17, when he preached in Athens, he addressed the philosophers. He was able to quote from memory from Greek poets and Greek philosophers. In a day when books were very rare and costly, there was no printing. Books were handwritten. And so to acquire books was uh, quite costly. And for him to have access uh, to this kind of literature, to take the time, even though it was secular pagan writings, he wanted to understand his culture. He wanted to understand the people around him so that he could minister effectively to them. And so he had quite, a, uh, uh, quite an education in the culture of his day. So we know from Paul's own life and ministry that he was not saying, don't study, don't prepare, don't train, just whatever comes to mind, just go with it. That's not what he was saying. Uh, and, and so even today, we enjoy the beautiful singing, but that takes practice. That takes preparation. That takes knowledge. That takes time. So Paul was not saying not to use any human ability. But I think what he was saying is this. Whatever ability you have, give it to the Lord. Surrender to Him. Do not rely on your human ability. Do not rely on your talent. Do not rely on your resources. But whatever you have, surrender to God and use it for His glory. So I would encourage you musicians and singers, you need to practice, you need to train, you need to prepare, and uh, you need to get advanced uh, instruction if you can. But when it's all said and done, when you go to sing or to play, don't treat it as a concert. Don't treat it as some kind of professional performance. But you need the anointing of the Holy Ghost. It needs to be backed up by prayer. It needs to be backed up by dedication. It needs to be an act of worship so that your faith is not in what you can do, but your faith is in what God can do. Praise God. Faith in the power of God. And I say the same for preachers. You should study. You should learn. If you can go to Bible college or Urson College or Urson Graduate School or we have online programs and, and there are various books you can read. We have ministerial reading requirements for those who are seeking licensure and on and on. All that's valuable and important. But at the end of the day, it's not whatever degree you might have. It's not whatever name you might have. It's not how long you've been in the church or who your dad is or anything like that. But you better have an anointing. You better have a relationship with God. You better know how to move in the realm of the Spirit. You better be open to the gifts of the Spirit. Because our faith does not rest in what people can do. Our faith rests in what God can do. Praise God. And so here today and tonight, we're honoring 24 years of pastoral ministry. And that's great, that's good, that's proper. The Bible teaches us to do that. But actually, our faith is not in the United Pentecostal Church International. Our faith is not in Greater Life Church. Our faith is not in Brother and Sister Hughes. Our honor and respect and our allegiance is due to them as pastor. But our faith is not in Bernard or Hughes or any other person of the past or present. You will find that when you get focused on an institution or a church or a 
or figure, you're at sooner or later, somewhere along the way, you will be disappointed. And if your identity is wrapped up in something like that, it's liable to crumble and fall. You're liable to change. You're liable to go a different direction. You're liable to compromise what you once held dear. But when your faith is in the power of God, it will stand the test of time. Because God is the one who changed you. God is the one who gave you convictions. God is the one who saved you. So I challenge you tonight, put your faith in the power of God. Oh, let's worship the Lord right now. Praise God. Praise God. The crown is not for us. The crown is for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The crown is the one true God. The crown is for the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in the power of God. Oh, let's worship him right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. But sometimes we make faith more complicated than it really needs to be. Perhaps in a time of crisis, we look for someone who has great faith. Maybe some will follow a big name preacher or radio, TV, somewhere. They feel like, well, that person has so much faith, the key is to find that person. But actually, the power of faith is in the object of your faith. Don't struggle to build up faith in your brain. It's not about you. It's about him. For example, I was raised in Korea. My parents were missionaries there for 20 uh, 20 years. I lived there for nine years until I came back right here to Houston at age 17 to go to Rice University. And then I went from there to the University of Texas Law School. And then from there, God called me to preach. So kind of had a course change. But anyway, uh, in Korea, I had the opportunity to visit Buddhist temples from time to time. They were scattered across the country. And I remember visiting the big temple in the city of Seoul. And you would see the people very sincere. They would come and hang paper lanterns in the courtyard. Each lantern represented a prayer request. And the whole place would be filled with paper lanterns. And then they'd come before this giant statue, this metal statue of Buddha. They would raise their hands, kind of like Pentecostals except slow motion. They would raise their hands above their heads. And they would bow all the way to the floor to their forehead was touching the floor and their arms stretched out. And they would stand up, maybe do that a hundred times. That's a lot of faith. Probably as much faith as we have. But at the end, they would turn around and leave with the same expression on their face. No joy, no peace, no healing, no deliverance. They had faith... But there was no result. Why? Because the object of their faith was a man who was dead and buried. The object of their faith was an idol. It had eyes, but they couldn't see. It had ears, but they couldn't hear. So all of their great faith was negated because the object of their faith could not fulfill what they believed. Now let's turn this around. And let's say of all the people in this building, you're the one with the least amount of faith. I don't recommend that, but let's say you are the one with the least amount of all. You might say, nothing could happen with me. But wait a minute. Even a little faith, if it's put in the Almighty God, 
could result in an answer to prayer. Because the power is not in you. The power is in God. The power of faith is not in your brain. The power of faith is in the object of your faith. So I'm challenging you tonight, no matter who you are, you are here because there is some level of faith. I doubt if anybody hit you over the head and dragged you here. You're here because of some representation of faith, which means you can hear from God. You can feel the presence of God. You can receive an answer in prayer. Your life can be changed. You can make personal contact with Almighty God. I'm challenging you. Put your faith in the power of God and let's see what God will do tonight. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We all have faith in some degree in the natural. Probably, I'm assuming most everybody here rode in some vehicle to church. I'm assuming probably very few of you walked or rode a horse. Uh, You got in your car. You turned the key, pushed the button. Most of us can't really explain the internal combustion engine. And if, even if we can explain that, most of us cannot explain the electronics by which the vehicle works today. But we just believe it. We're told that it works. We're told push this button and something will happen. And we believe it. We believe it so much that we plan our whole day on it. We don't start for church an hour or two early thinking, you know, I'm probably going to have to walk, so I better allow plenty of time. No, we allow just enough time, if that, because we depend on that car to do its thing. Even though we can't explain it, we don't understand it, we just accept it. If we can do that in the natural, then we can do that in the spiritual. We may not understand everything. We may not be able to explain everything. But we can say, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to base my day on what the Word of God says. I'm going to put my plans in God's hands. I will put my faith in the power of God. Now, if you think I'm getting way out there, let me give you a story in Matthew chapter 17. There was a man that had a son who was attacked by the devil. And uh, he would have seizures. He would fall into the fire, the water. He was at in danger of being injured or killed. So he brought this boy to the disciples of Jesus, and he asked them to heal him. They prayed for him, but nothing happened. And then Jesus showed up. So the man repeated his request. That Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the son immediately. It was a great miracle. So the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, Why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast out the demon and heal This boy. And Jesus answered in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. Notice what he says. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus, the words of Jesus here. He said, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. He said, if you just had a faith like a seed. Now, seed is very small. The mustard seed was the smallest seed that the farmers of Palestine used. And so I think what he was saying is you can't measure faith in human quantities. Don't try to compare, well, 
he has this much faith, and that person has that much faith. And if you want this, you have to have so much faith. If you want that, you have so much faith. He said, stop trying to calculate faith. Stop trying to figure it out. Look at it like a seed. Now, if you take one seed and put it in your hand, it's essentially dead. You can put it in a packet, and it could sit there for years, and nothing will ever happen. For all intents and purposes, it's useless. You can't feed your family with one seed. So basically, it's dead and worthless. But what if you take that one seed and put it in the ground? It can grow, even after years of dormancy. It can produce a plant. That plant can produce hundreds of seeds. You can reap the harvest and replant. And eventually you can feed your family for the rest of your life from one original seed. Faith is like that. No matter how small and insignificant it may seem. No matter how dead and useless it may appear at the moment. Don't just sit there, but take a step of faith. Plant the seed in the ground. Take action and something will grow. Something will begin to happen and eventually nothing will be impossible. That's what faith is like. So no matter your circumstance, if you would sit down and look at your life right now, Calculate your situation. Maybe it's your family, your marriage, your job, or whatever it may be. And you say, you know, it's impossible for this to work out. There's no way this could happen. I would have to have years. I would have to have this much money. I would have to have this kind of miracle. No way. Stop trying to calculate your way into success. But just take one step of faith. Start praying. Start believing. Put your faith in the power of God. And there is no telling what God can do if you will believe. Put your faith in the power of God. That's true for an individual. It's true for a marriage. It's true for a family. It's true for a church. Put God to the test. Step out by faith. Pray the prayer of faith. Commit yourself in prayer and fasting. Turn your eyes toward Jesus. Look to the Lord. Put your faith in the power of God. And something miraculous will begin to happen. Oh, let's praise the Lord right now. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek. And you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. You probably noticed that, that A-S-K, A for ask, S for seek, K for knock. It's an easy way to memorize that verse. Many times we don't have, the book of James says, because we don't ask. How many times do we plan our day, we buy our ticket, we pack our bags, and then we say, Lord, what's your will? Or something goes wrong. We say, Lord, you, why aren't you helping me? Why didn't you help me? And I think the Lord's saying, well, you know, if you would have asked me before you made your plans, before you bought your ticket, before you packed your bags. You know, there's a chorus we used to sing, I think, in the 70s, when you've tried everything and everything has failed, try Jesus. That's a great chorus for evangelism. If you're on drugs, you're living an immoral life, you're 
going into Eastern religions, you know, nothing works. We'll try Jesus. But that's a horrible song for Christians to live by, right? Don't seek him last. Seek him first. Ask. Maybe the reason why you haven't had a miracle is you haven't really asked. You say, well, I have asked. Nothing's happened. Don't give up. Go the next step. Be more aggressive yet. Seek. Ask, you can just stand there with your hand open, but seeking implies you've got to go hunting. You've got to look around. You don't give up so easily. Don't stop after the first prayer. Don't stop coming to church after the first time things don't work out. You've got to seek. You say, well, I still don't have. Well, step it up to the next level of action. Knock. That's more aggressive yet. Now, if the door is open, you really don't have to knock. But when the door is shut, then you knock. I wonder how many times we're seeking God's will, we feel like we're doing what God wants us to do, we're walking by faith, and we come to a shut door, and we just shrug our shoulders and give up and say, well, the door's closed. I guess it's not God's will anymore. I wonder if God wants us to knock on the door. I wonder if he wants us to try the handle. I wonder if he wants us to put our shoulder into it and push. Some things require a little more activity, a little more action. Sometimes you got to put your faith in action. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I think, is it tonight that Brother Hamilton's story is supposed to be aired? Tomorrow night? I don't know how it's going to all work, but one of the ministers of our church uh, was contacted by National Geographic to do a special. They're doing a special on miracles, and they asked if he could share his testimony. So as soon as it airs, he's supposed to send me a copy. But I remember he was our full-time outreach director when I was pastor in Austin, and he had some type of blackout, some type of seizure, and it turned out it was a blockage of blood flow to his brain. And so when he started having those seizures, he couldn't work anymore. He couldn't drive a vehicle. He was basically completely incapacitated. And he was a great man of faith and prayed for many to be healed and receive the Holy Ghost. As I said, he was our full-time outreach director. He had been the chaplain in the state jail. We'd baptized hundreds in Jesus' name. Uh, many miracles had taken place. But here he was, completely incapacitated as they... Um, Checked him out. They found his heart was enlarged, and they found that there was a valve that was going on and off and was cutting off the blood flow to his brain. They said there's no cure, no surgery could do any good, no medication could solve the problem. They could give him stuff to try to lessen the impact, but they really said, we have no solution for you. And we prayed for him, and this happened over a period of months. There was no healing. We kept him on the payroll. He would try to come to work, but... His mind was, you know, because of the seizures and lack of sleep. And a lot of times he's confused. It's very hard to get a whole lot done in that condition. So he would do what he could. One night, it was a sunny night, the power of God fell in a powerful way. And I just felt led to go pray for him. We gathered several people around prayed for him. He told me later, he said, the moment you laid hands on me, I felt the power of God just flow through my body like electricity, a healing. And I had told him before that, I I said, you know, you're a man of faith. I believe God wants to give you a certified miracle. You know, most of the time we pray, 
God helps us, and we know God did it. But you can't really prove it to anybody. If you, if you talk to a skeptic and you say, you know, I prayed, and God supplied the need, I've got to raise my job. Well, it's coincidence. You know, I had a really bad headache. I prayed. It instantly went away. Well, that's coincidence. Uh, you're relaxed. And, you know, almost anything, you know God answered prayer, but there's usually some explanation that a skeptic could give. You just believe it because that's the way we operate, by faith. But I said, I believe God wants to give you a certified miracle that you can base your ministry on that testimony. And so he went to the doctor, and after that experience, sure enough, his blackout stopped. He was able to resume work in ministry. But he went back to the doctor. The doctor said, your heart has gone back to normal, which can't happen. Once your heart is enlarged, it does not shrink. And the valve started working properly. And so he gave him a diagnosis in technical language. It's in my file somewhere. I need to look it up. But it's in technical medical terminology. It was a Muslim doctor. And so our minister said, well, doctor, what do these words mean? He said, what it means is a spontaneous cure, no known cause. He said, what does that mean? He said, it means your God healed you. Praise God. Put your faith in the power of God. Put your faith in the power of God. He went from there to start a church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's where he is today. I want you to know the days of miracles are not over. But whether it's a physical miracle or whether it's a spiritual miracle, or whether it's both. Put your faith in the power of God. The same context, but reading from Luke 11, Jesus gave this example. He said, you know, if your son asks you for a piece of bread, are you going to give him a stone? If he asks you for some fish, are you going to give him a snake? If he asks for an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion? Of course not. If you earthly parents, you even though you're sinners, you're not perfect, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Jesus asked in Luke eleven thirteen, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God wants to give us his spirit. God wants to minister to our needs. God wants to answer our prayers. As I said, we make it more complicated than it needs to be. But if there's a need in your life, and if you need to receive the Holy Ghost, the first thing is to repent. You come to God on His terms. That makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? You don't come on your terms saying, God, I demand this, and this is the way I want it. No, you say, Lord, I surrender to you. And what God asks, if you want to be filled with His Spirit, you've got to turn from your selfish way of life. You've got to turn from your life of sin. You've got to repent. You've got to confess your sins. You have to surrender your life. You must trust God with your life. It's faith. And once you pray that kind of prayer, then you'll begin to feel the burden lift. And many people make the mistake of quitting right then because many denominations teach, well, salvation just consists of confessing. But confessing prepares the way for what comes next. 
And once you confess your sins, once you surrender your life, once you ask God to forgive you, then you feel that burden lift, you should start worshiping and praising God and transition from the prayer of repentance to the prayer of faith and the prayer of worship. And as you begin worshiping Him, you'll feel His Spirit. If you're not familiar with it, it's sometimes a little scary because God's taken over. And we're not used to that happening. And so some people close their mouth and clench their uh, jaw and and all that. Well, God is not going to speak through you if you're not going to let him. So you have to learn to speak out in your own language. You have to praise him. You have to let go of your inhibitions. You, You have to become vocal. You have to put your faith in action. You have to plant the seed in the ground. And as you begin worshiping him vocally, then suddenly the Spirit of God takes over and you begin speaking in a language you never learned as God fills you with the Holy Spirit. And that's how we receive the Holy Ghost. And really the same way is how we receive every other answer in need. We don't come to God boasting of what we can do. We don't come to God negotiating. We we don't come to God begging. But we simply come to God in faith. And if there's something we realize that our heart is not right, we first take care of that. We align ourselves according to God's will because how can we receive God's answer if we're not in a position to know what God wants? We have to surrender our will to His so that when He wants to answer, it will be according to His plan. Many times our requests go away when we get aligned to God's will. We start seeing things from a new perspective. Sometimes God answers the prayer while we're praying. We don't even know what he's doing until we get back home and realize God's already taken care of whatever I was worried about. But as we surrender to him, our priorities change. Our desires change. Our heart aligns with his. And then we begin to worship and have faith and rejoice. And the answer comes. So I'm challenging each of us tonight. Don't put your faith in your own ability. As great as the church is, don't put your faith in the church as an institution. It's not because you belong, you're a member of this and that church. It's because your sanctuary is like this and because your choir sings like this. No, it's because your God is great. It's because your God is all-powerful. Put your faith in the power of God. We respect everything I've just mentioned. We thank God for all the tools and means that we have, all of God's gifts to the church. All that has its place. It's valuable. It's needed. It's important. But our faith is in God. Oh, I feel His presence right now. Let's stand together. Hallelujah. 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 The presence of the Lord is here. The Spirit of God is in this place. Put your faith in the power of God.